0: It's great to see you. If you've never met, my name's Jay, part of the team here. Welcome, everybody in the theater, and I know we've got folks watching online as well. Thanks so much for joining us. I want to jump right in and show you a picture of a Jewish rabbi, a modern Jewish rabbi. This is a rabbi named Joshua Franklin. He serves the synagogue in uh, the Hamptons, New York, the Jewish center of the Hamptons, and the. The reason I know about Rabbi Joshua Franklin is because in January, he was all over the news. Some, some of you might recognize him. Um, Rabbi Franklin was in the news, like nationally, because on January 1st, New Year's Day, uh, as his Jewish congregation gathered in the synagogue in the Hamptons, he preached a thousand-word sermon. And he said um, at the very beginning of the sermon, the sermon was about vulnerability So he said, hey, for the sake of being vulnerable, as I preach this sermon to you, I want you to know that I am plagiarizing this sermon. That's what he said. He said, I didn't write this sermon, but I'm gonna preach it to you anyways. And he preaches the sermon, and the sermon was so good, uh, his congregation erupted in applause at the end. And near the end of the sermon, Rabbi Joshua Franklin revealed that he had plagiarized the sermon from. OpenAI's (laughs) OpenAI's ChatGPT. <laughs> he had actually inputted into ChatGPT. If you're not familiar, it is a company called OpenAI, Artificial Intelligence. It's an artificial intelligence platform um, that will scour the internet, and whatever you ask it to do, it'll scour the internet and put together text for you. So he basically inputted, writing a thousand-word sermon on intimacy and vulnerability for a Jewish congregation at a local synagogue. And it put it outputted a thousand word sermon that was so good the congregation erupted in applause and in some interviews afterwards Rabbi Franklin talked about how frightening that was right that now he didn't lie he said it up front he's like I plagiarized this and toward the end he said I plagiarized it from an artificial intelligence machine. Now, I know that there's a lot of dialogue about AI right now. I don't think that dialogue is going away anytime soon. I think it has implications for us in really significant ways. I think it's early, and so we're going to continue sort of trekking down this road. But I share this story with you today only simply to point out the uniqueness of of the cultural moment we are living through and specifically how our cultural moment with technology and with what's happening with media and just sort of our own um, reliance and uh, you know reverence for the autonomous individual self, all of these different things at play that I think in many ways, it's not necessarily all good or bad, but in many ways my concern is that it is accelerating the erosion of trust at a very basic human level. If we're not careful, it will erode our trust in one another. Let me explain. I did not write this sermon using artificial intelligence. (laughs) I did not open chat GPT and say, write me a 3000 word sermon on the authority of Jesus. But how do you know? How do you know? You don't really know. Our staff doesn't even really know. They see me sitting in my office at my laptop, but do they know, right? That, like, does he have that little gray-black box open, ChatGPT? He's like, write me a sermon. How do you know? You don't know. You, in, at some level, there has to be at least some basic exchange of trust between us. And as more and more work, even creative work, becomes automated, I I think, as a culture and as a society, we very well may be left wondering in increasing measure, who or what am I actually learning from or listening to right now? And again, one of my concerns is that this will deepen what is already a considerable depth of cynicism and skepticism in culture and in society today. In fact, let me show you a chart. This is a graphic chart from uh, the Pew Research Center. And between 1958 and 2015, they measured through uh, sort of big longitudinal studies and surveys, the Pew Research Center measured um, over the course of uh, 1958 all the way to 2015, general public trust amongst Americans in the government. The sentence, the question, or the sentence that was posed to everybody taking the survey for like decades was, I trust the federal government to do the right thing always or most of the time. That was the, that was the sentence. And then survey respondents were asked, how much do you agree or disagree with that statement? That I trust the federal government to do the right thing always or most of the time. The highest percentage was in 1964, 77%, almost eight in 10 Americans in 1964 said, you know what, I generally trust the government to do the right thing always or most of the time. The low was in 2017, where only 18% of Americans, less than one in five Americans say, yeah, I trust the government to do the right thing always or most of the time. Now, um, in the last five years, since the most recent survey, Pew Research has continued to do this survey. It's not charted here, but that percentage has hovered right around 18 to 20%. So it just consistently seems to be that less than one in five of us believe that the government is trying to do the right thing always or most of the time. I don't share this with you. Let me be clear. I am not saying we should or shouldn't trust the government more or less. That is beside the point. I'm simply pointing out that culturally and societally today, you and I and the society and culture in which we live, we have a trust problem. Maybe some of it is justified, maybe it isn't, doesn't matter. The point being, we have a trust problem. And specifically, we have a trust in authority problem. Most of us are really skeptical, really cynical when it comes to authority, whether that's the government or at work or in our families. We have a trust in authority problem. Again, may be justified, Maybe not, probably somewhere in between those two. The, whole, the only point today, right now at least, is that we have a trust problem. So let me show you a chart here. And, and I've thought about this quite extensively. For me, I, I've come to believe that there are all sorts of reasons why we have a trust and authority problem. But I think the cultural moment we are living through right now poses a very unique trust in authority problem. And I think it's because all of the cultural tides are pulling us in three very specific directions away from any concept of authority. You think about media and how the ever-expanding influence of media is pulling us away from any sense of authority. You think about how polarized we have become, right? I mean, sometimes we define people. Are you a CNN person, MSNBC, Fox News? What are you? Are you a New York Times, a Boston Globe, an LA Times, San Francisco Chronicle? What are you? are you blue are you red are you whatever right conservative liberal like in all of this so much of this hinges on the fact that in the digital age especially the bottom line for the business of media is designed to pull us apart The more we are pulled apart and fractured, the the more beneficial it is for the bottom line of media corporations and companies. Now, I'm not critiquing them as a blanket critique. I'm just telling you that's how it works. And because of this, we're really skeptical, really cynical. Again, some of it justifiably so. We also have a technology problem. And some of this sort of converges with one another. But again, seriously, how do you know I didn't write this with ChatGPT? You don't really know. Like, how do you know you're actually listening to my thoughts and ideas? You don't really know. Now, I've come to believe that especially with artificial intelligence and things like ChatGPT, I mean, this stuff is accelerating at a pace that is so rapid, it's hard to even keep up. This cynicism and skepticism we have that is this really a human being I'm listening to, a human being I'm engaging with, or is this just technology? It is going to increase, and rapidly so. I mean, a friend of mine just sent me, a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine sent me a voice message. And it was a voice message of him reciting some, like, long stretch of Shakespeare. And I texted him back, and I was like, thank you for wasting 10 minutes of my life. What was that? (laughs) Like, why, why, dude? Why? And he texted me back, and he said, that wasn't me. I typed, I copied and pasted that text into a voice sort of artificial intelligence platform, I recorded about three minutes of my actual voice, and it took the text and spoke it in my voice. And I was like, what? It's was like, yeah, that wasn't me. That was a computer sounding like me, and I just sent that to you. I mean, think about the implications of this, specifically when it comes to our level of trust with one another and our sense of, like, our concept of authority. Like, who am I really listening to? And then... Something that has been on the rise for centuries, at least in the modern Western world, is the deepening influence of the individual autonomous self. I mean, we live in a you do you, I do me culture. We've talked about this here at Westgate before. We live in a my truth is my truth, your truth is your truth culture. Again, not necessarily all bad, but deep, dangerous implications for what it means to live under the authority of somebody. And again, I'm not making a statement that is political, I am simply pointing us to the problem. Because these and so much more conspire to accelerate our cynicism and our skepticism. And some of it, again, justifiably so. But the danger is that we are quickly becoming a people totally unaccustomed to and even repulsed by the concept of authority. And for followers of Jesus, this poses a tremendous challenge. Why? Because one cannot read the gospels without being struck by the definitive and unapologetic authority that Jesus communicates and claims for himself. We can debate the merits of our compliance to various earthly authorities. We can do that. But following Jesus demands surrender to his authority. And this is a problem for us. Most of us really like the idea of Jesus as our friend, our buddy, our genie in the bottle who grants us our three wishes. We really like the concept of Jesus coming alongside us to help us propel forward in the sort of story for our lives that we are writing for ourselves. But read the gospels and it is abundantly clear and I would argue so clear that you cannot argue it, that Jesus seems to believe that he is supposed to write the story of your life, not you. And that's a problem us. It's a problem for me. Because of the culture in which I have come up and grown up and been raised, I don't really like authority. I don't really like someone, anyone, telling me how to live my life, where to go, what to do, how to orient my priorities. That doesn't feel very American, does it? Let me read you a story. Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion, we'll talk more about this in a moment, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, the centurion, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you, First, a couple of thoughts about the town of Capernaum and this centurion. The story takes place in Capernaum, which for most of Jesus's earthly ministry was sort of his home base. That's where Jesus did most of his earthly ministry work. At the time, in the first century, Capernaum was a small fishing village. Um, It still is, uh, obviously, in the same location, kind of the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Most historians think at the time of Jesus, there was anywhere between like 1,200 and 1,500, maybe up to 1,700 people in the town and the village of Capernaum. And it was a village. This was not a city. Um, In the ancient world, the way you would define or just distinguish between a city, like a significant city or a village, was all significant cities had city walls that would protect its citizens from outside invaders and enemies. Capernaum had no wall. Not only did Capernaum not have any walls, it didn't have any paved roads. I mean, this is a, this is a nondescript, insignificant little village. And that's where the savior of the universe chooses to do his earthly ministry. In fact, the most public space in Capernaum was the synagogue. It was the center of both religious and Jewish, uh, religious and social life for the people there. So this story takes place in Capernaum, which is significant in hindsight because Jesus did much of his ministry there. But at the time, you guys, it was not a significant place. Capernaum would not be, it was not like the San Francisco or Silicon Valley or London or New York or LA of the time. It was like Fresno, right? We make fun of Fresno a lot here, and I feel so bad. If you're from Fresno, I apologize. I personally love Fresno. (laughs) Everyone's laughing here because that's not true for anybody. That was a joke. Um, I don't mind Fresno, honestly. Okay, so it's an insignificant town. It's an insignificant town, (laughs) Capernaum and Fresno. Let's talk about the centur. What's that? Is this an AI joke? <laughs> yeah, ChatGPT wrote that for me. Don't blame me. That was ChatGPT, 100% AI joke. Thank you so much. You saved me. You saved me. That's so good. <laughs> I uh, I don't I don't know what to say now. <laughs> I lost my place in my notes. Okay, let's talk about centurions for a second. Um, this man is a Roman centurion. A centurion was a military official in the Roman military. And, you know, the word centurion has the same root as the word century, 100, right? So... Roman centurions were military officials who had really done well. They had risen up the ranks and they were now all Roman centurions. They commanded regiments of a hundred soldiers. That's why they were called centurions. Now, all Roman military, but especially centurions and those who were higher up in rank in the Roman military, in order to get to where they were, so this centurion, in order to become a centurion he would have had to have taken pagan religious oaths in allegiance to the king of Rome, the emperor of Rome called Caesar. So this man, to be a centurion, it's not like he enlisted, did a really good job, and then just sort of moved up the ranks and got you know a, a certain title. It was more than that. He had to, he had to pledge on a religious level his allegiance to the emperor of Rome, Caesar, not just as the governmental leader of the empire, he had to pledge his allegiance to Caesar as God. That's how all centurions became centurions. So this is a commitment. For a centurion, you are making not just like an official governmental commitment or like a job commitment. This centurion has committed his allegiance to Caesar as God. Now, all centurions served at minimum 20 years. That was the calling. 20 years, and then you could retire. But the way the Roman military worked, they would move centurions from place to place, city to city, town to town. They would rarely leave them in one location. Because of this, because of the transience of the job, for most centurions, Getting married, settling down, having children was not possible until they retired. Now, you have stories later in the Gospels of of a centurion who seems to have a family. Most scholars believe that centurion is retired for a variety of reasons they believe this. This centurion, because of context, what it seems to indicate is this centurion is on active duty. What that most likely means is that this centurion is not married, doesn't have children, which explains why this centurion seems to care so deeply about his servant. You ever wonder that? Can't he just get another servant? He's got money. I mean, he's a high-ranking government official respected military officer in the most powerful empire in the known world, centurions were paid fairly well. He can just get another servant. Why does he come to Jesus begging him to to save his servant, to heal his servant? Why does he do this? There's a lot of um, historical evidence Uh, that tells us that most Roman centurions, while they were on active duty, because they could not settle down, because they didn't typically have wives and children, at least while they were in service, their closest relationships were to their servants who would travel with them from assignment to assignment. I share that with you because there is a sort of poignancy to this story. This Roman centurion is not just like some cold, calculated soldier. He probably cares deeply about this servant. This servant was probably the closest thing this centurion had to family. The other thing to think about is that Roman centurions represented for the Jewish people, and in Capernaum, it was a heavily Jewish village, and Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. Roman centurions were despised by the Jewish people. They represented the oppressor. And so I share all of that to say, in an unlikely place like Capernaum, an unlikely person, a Roman centurion, displays an understanding of Jesus' authority that leaves Jesus, in the words of the text, amazed. So a few thoughts on the authority of Jesus, what we can learn. First, in Matthew 8, verse 8, what does the centurion say to Jesus? Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. You know, it was really interesting. In the Greek, these words, this actual phrase, is verbatim the same exact phrase as John the Baptist's words describing Jesus back in Matthew chapter 3 when Jesus comes to be baptized by him. Matthew three eleven. after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. John the Baptist utters these incredible words of recognition that he is great and I am small. And this Roman centurion utters the same exact words. I do not deserve, I am not worthy, which essentially means, Jesus, you are greater than me. The Roman centurion, who is a man with authority, power, and prestige, acknowledges the reality of his lowly position in relation to Jesus. Surrender to the authority of Christ always begins with the acknowledgement of our smallness in comparison to Jesus' greatness, to God's greatness. I love what the psalmist writes in Psalm chapter eight. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? I mean, this sounds counterintuitive in our day and age when everybody is fighting for status, clout, notoriety, and fame. But I want you to think about the moments in your life when you have felt the most loved, cherished, and safe. I have a four-year-old son named Simon, and sometimes he'll get the hiccups. And he will complain and complain that he's got hiccups. But sometimes I think he's making up the fact that he has hiccups. Because when he has hiccups, I don't know if this is effective. It's probably not. But for some reason, months ago, one day he had hiccups. And I was like, drink this water. And I was like having him, hold your breath. I was having him do all this stuff. The hiccups wouldn't go away. So for some reason in my mind, there's like no scientific evidence of this. I just thought if I could scare him, I could scare the hiccups away. So I grabbed him and I didn't tell him what I was doing. I picked him up and he's staring at me, hiccuping at me. And then I threw him as high as I could in the air and then caught him right before he hit the ground. And he like kind of was like, oh my gosh. And then he loved it. It was like, again. Right? So I was like, okay, dude. I like threw him up again and, and then like it didn't work. But now he's just constantly like, Appa, he calls me Appa, which is dad in Korean. He's like, Appa, I have hiccups. And then he's just like, look at it, like to throw him in the air. On the one hand, that's not like the safest thing, right? Like to get thrown, flung up in the air. But why does he love it? Why does my son love that? Because he trusts me. And actually that which might on paper seem a little risky or dangerous for him brings utter joy. It's very strange. I mean, think about that. In the world of developmental psychology, there's a concept called attachment theory. It's a psychological theory uh, concerning relationships and specifically the relationships between young children and their caregivers and how that relationship and how children attach to their caregivers affects them for the rest of their life. And in the 60s and 70s, There was a developmental psychologist named Mary Ainsworth who noted that there are four specific types of attachments that young children make to their caregivers. And she said that the healthiest type of attachment is what she called secure attachment. And there's a writer named Kurt Thompson who's a Christian and a clinical psychologist who wrote a fantastic book years ago called The Soul of Shame. I want to read for you Kurt Thompson's description of how secure attachment works, what it looks like. It's a little long but um, it's important. He says, one of the fundamental aspects of secure attachment is the infant's enlarging sense of the presence of a secure relational base from which he or she can explore the world. Without the presence of safety, little to no creative activity can ensue. Thus, when babies feel emotionally safe, they are free to engage their surrounding environment, learning not only about the world, but their responses to it. They grow in their joy of curiosity and discovery. Even when they encounter danger or noxious stimuli or sustain a rupture in relationship, for example, crossing a limit appropriately set by a parent, subsequently having to endure the negative consequences of that choice, a secure attachment provides for the healing and repair of that distress or rupture. In this way, even in the face of temporarily unpleasant effect, Baby's sense of curiosity and grounding and joy are preserved. To experience the safety and joy of secure attachment, not simply as children, but even now as sons and daughters of God, you and I need someone greater than us, stronger, wiser, more capable, more powerful, who we can trust and enjoy, we can surrender. To their greatness and experience freedom. This is why, even though it feels counterintuitive to surrender your life to anyone, including God, it is actually the path to freedom. Even though it feels like surrender is enslavement, when it comes to a God who is more capable, more powerful, more able, and simultaneously more loving and more gracious and more kind than we could possibly imagine, surrender to him in Jesus is not the path to enslavement. It is the path to freedom. Matthew 8, verse 9. The Roman centurion says, listen, I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. So he basically says, I am under authority and I have authority over others. And I tell this one go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. As culture grows increasingly hostile to the concept of authority, we assume the worst about it. And again, some of that is justified. There have been, obviously, in our personal lives and in culture at large, gross abuses and misuses of authority from broken human beings like you and me. So I understand the increasing hostility toward authority, the skepticism and cynicism. But this Roman centurion knew himself. He knew that his authority over his soldiers was meant for their good. And he assumes the same about Jesus's authority. Until we trust the one in authority and their intentions toward us, our appetite for distraction that feels good will always overwhelm our desire for wise guidance that leads to the truly good life. And the way that looks in our day and age is that most of us don't actually want leaders to lead us. We much prefer personalities to entertain us. Think about the way you consume the news. Neil Postman wrote 40 years ago in a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And the entire thing is about television. But his ideas in that book, I think, have gone off the rails. They've exploded in the digital age, and the internet age. And he basically says, I'm paraphrasing him here, but when um, responsible journalism turns into entertainment, you are on the precipice of the death of an entire culture. That's where we are. We don't want good leaders to lead us, we want personalities to entertain us. This is true of politics, media, and social relationships. It's also true of the church. It's true of you and me, how many of us approach Jesus. Lifeway Research last year did a huge longitudinal study and project called the State of Theology Survey. They surveyed professing Christians, thousands of professing Christians in America. And one of the questions they asked was this, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. And they asked, not everyone, professing Christians. They asked Christians, how much do you agree or disagree with this statement? Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. This is shocking. 53% of Christians strongly or somewhat agree with that statement. That Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 11% of Christians aren't sure. And only 36%, so basically one in three Christians, strongly or somewhat disagree. So think about this. 64% of professing Christians in America today, according to this study, say, yeah, I think Jesus was a great teacher, but he wasn't God. These are Christians. Almost two in three Christians say, I think Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. Let me just say definitively to you, if Jesus is not God, then this is a giant waste of time. Like this, all of this, you being here, all of this, what you're gonna witness in a few moments with baptisms, it is a giant waste of time. I think many people prefer Jesus the great teacher because if he's God, he's authoritative. But if Jesus was just a great teacher, then his teachings are sort of optional, If Jesus is God, then his teachings are mandatory. They're imperative, and we don't like that. But what does the Bible say about Jesus? Colossians 1, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What did Jesus himself say about his own authority? Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Some of you know the C.S. Lewis quote from Mere Christianity, a bit long, but I, this has been so helpful for me and I believe this to my core. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. I'm gonna invite Les and the team to come up and we're gonna sing and respond here in a moment. This is the question before us. If Jesus is God, then he is the authority in our lives. And I know that doesn't feel good. We would like to live our lives freed from authority. We would like to be the authors of our own stories. I love that when Jesus encounters this um, centurion in this no-name town called Capernaum, it says when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. This is amazing. (laughs) This is amazing that a person like a centurion in a place like Capernaum would recognize and trust the loving, gracious authority of Jesus. A person like this in a place like this a person like me and a person like you, in a place like this, as secular and post-Christian as Silicon Valley. It's possible for all of us. We're gonna sing a few songs and then in a moment, um, we're gonna baptize several people. And as we baptize them, I want you to know it is their public declaration before all of us as a church family that Jesus is the authority in their lives. Their belief that Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again to give them life. As they immerse themselves in the waters and rise up out of the waters anew, it is a, it is a symbol and a reminder for all of us and a celebration for us that the old life driven by individual autonomy and the desire to lead themselves, that life is done, it's dead and it's gone. And they are being arisen anew under the loving, gracious authority of a Jesus who died for them and died for you and rose again so that we might have life. Years ago, um, I baptized a man named Tom. And Tom was, uh, man, he had achieved like all the success in the world. Um, He worked for many years in the C-suite of a large company. He had all the money that he could have wanted, all the luxuries and comforts of life until his life came crumbling down. And I remember having a meeting with him a week or so before his baptism. And he said so many things that were so profound and insightful to me. Um, but at one point, he said during our meeting, he said, I, and I'm paraphrasing him here, but essentially what he said was, Jay, I've been searching for freedom my whole life, and I finally found it in surrender. I've been seeking freedom for decades, and I'm shocked because I found that freedom in surrender. Surrender and be free. We're gonna sing and respond, but I wanna make an invitation. Maybe some of you are in the room and this is striking you. Maybe God is speaking to you. Stop trying to be the author of your own story. Maybe today you need to make that decision, that public declaration that you want to find freedom in surrendering your life to the authority of Christ. We're gonna baptize a half dozen uh, brothers and sisters in a moment, but we would love to baptize you. There's no pressure. Don't be coerced by emotion or anything like that. Don't do this because you're like, oh, I guess I'm supposed to. No, you're not supposed to. You should do it if you feel compelled, but maybe one, one or two or however many of you feel compelled. I know we've got folks in the theater as well. If that's you, I wanna invite you as well. So as he sing these next couple of songs, if you sense the spirit of God saying, you've been trying to write the story of your own life and you are enslaved to yourself, surrender your life to me, share that decision publicly and find freedom in me. If that's you today, then I wanna invite you. We have extra towels, extra clothes. Our team is right back here. At any point during these next couple of songs, come walk in the back, meet our team, and we'd love to baptize you today. Again, even those of you who are in the theater, make your way over, and we'd love to baptize you today. Let's all stand and sing and respond together, and then we'll celebrate new life in baptism here together in a moment.